0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In grad school, I signed up for a class on modernist British literature. Towards the end of the semester... For the time students know, when the reading becomes more of a skim than a deep read, we were assigned Thomas Hardy's book, Jude the Obscure, and uh, it sounded thrilling, and turns out it was every bit as thrilling as it sounded, and uh, because the, the end of the semester was getting to a close, I didn't manage to finish the book before class began. But by this time, I was an old hand at bluffing my way through discussions of reading assignments that I hadn't actually finished, so there was no problem. And as class began, I didn't feel nervous until the student sitting next to me leans over and says, can you believe the ending? And of course, I said, yeah, that was was something. (laughs) And then she said in a whisper, I can't believe the children all killed themselves. And then the teacher started the class. That's a hard thing to bluff your way through when something crazy like that happens that you didn't see coming. And I should have said spoiler alert because I've just spoiled the ending of the book for you. Sorry about that. Those of you who have Jude the Obscure in your nightstand, please uh, just keep reading. It, it gets better. Um <laughs> We're really careful about stuff like that these days, right? No one now would lean over and and spoil the ending, like reveal the plot twist to you before you got there. That'd be terrible. We live in fear of having people tell us the end of the story before we've gotten there. And I can sympathize with that frustration, but uh, imagine that the book was sealed, Imagine that the ending was inaccessible, not that you hadn't had time to read it, but that you literally could not read it because it was all sealed up. That's the way it was for the prophet Daniel. If you go back to the Old Testament, you read through the book of Daniel, there's this moment where Daniel, who's been given all of these incredible visions, some of which have been interpreted, some of which remain cryptic, when suddenly the the meaning of it all the resolution of it all is sealed. The book is closed and, and sealed tightly. In Daniel twelve four, Daniel is told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And Daniel pushes back a little bit. He says, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? A natural enough desire. You've been shown all of these wonders. You kind of want to know how it's all going to work out. What will be the outcome of these things? And the reply is, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Daniel wasn't alone. Isaiah, as great a prophet as he was, got the same thing. Isaiah writes in chapter 29, verse 11 of his book, the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot for it is sealed. The ending cannot be known. It has been shut up in a book that has been locked away. And now, we come to the end of Scripture, the book of Revelation, and suddenly there's a book. There is a scroll in the hand of the one who sits on the throne and it's all sealed up. It is unopenable. The the sealed book with the ending inside has now made an appearance Once more, only this time, things go differently. Now it is time for the scroll to be opened. And in John's vision, this is what he sees. This is everything that he's been waiting for, everything that all the prophets before him have been anticipating, that all of the people of God have been looking forward to. And here it is, the sealed scroll. And the hand of the one who sits on the throne, and an angel comes and says, who is worthy to open it? And you can feel the anticipation. It is time to finally find out the way the story will end. And yet, it cannot be opened. There is no one who is worthy. As we look at this passage, we're going to look at a few things specifically. There's, There's a lot here. And we'll focus on the beginning of the chapter and we will definitely not plumb the depths of what we've read this morning. But I want to talk about the significance of the seals on the scroll. What we should think about the seals that are on the scroll. And I also want to spend a little bit of time thinking about the apostles' tears. John weeps. He weeps bitterly at this. And I want to think about why that is. Why does he have that reaction? Then finally, I want to reflect on the worth of the Lamb, the worth of the Lamb. John, like every prophet before him, was waiting for something, was anticipating it. And it's the same thing that we're waiting for. He was waiting for the seals to break. The great book was sealed up. He wanted to see it opened. And, and this is the moment where we see the preparation necessary for that book to be opened. So let's talk a little bit about the seals. Now, I said earlier, we're jumping to Revelation, but that doesn't mean we're omitting what's come before. As we've been looking through the Old Testament, we've been looking at the ways in which God's plan of salvation was revealed progressively over time. So there was a purpose to the waiting. There was a reason for the delay that was taking place because God was showing in bits and pieces over generations, over millennia what it was he intended to do. He was revealing himself in that way. And that was also true during the period of the kingdom of Israel. In the Old Testament, you have this moment, this kind of golden age of the United Kingdom of Israel. It's a golden age that, like most golden ages, lasts for a hot minute and then is over. That kingdom falls apart. It struggles for centuries to kind of hold the pieces together, but it can't manage to do that, and eventually it is overwhelmed. By the forces around it. But as that earthly kingdom crumbles, God begins to reveal visions to his prophets of another kingdom. He begins to to show them a picture of a spiritual kingdom that is to come, a kingdom that will be established forever. Isaiah sees it. Ezekiel sees it. Daniel sees it. They get a vision of this, and it's these visions that contain so many of the messianic prophecies that we read to ourselves during the season of Advent, that we look at as as words that guide us through our anticipation of Christ to come. As we've been looking at the Old Testament revelation of God's plan of salvation, we've seen the pieces come together. In Genesis 3, when we looked at the fall of humanity and God's response to that and the curses, we discover even in the condemnation a promise of salvation. Even as God names sin, He gives hope. He promises that salvation will come and it will come through a promised Son, the seed of the woman. In other words, a human being will be the one who will accomplish this. We looked at Genesis 22, that harrowing passage where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. And there we learned that if there is sin, then there must be a sacrifice. This promised son, the seed of the woman will come, but he will accomplish our salvation through an act of atonement. A sacrifice will be made. Then last time in Exodus 14, in the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, we saw that this salvation will be a deliverance from the bondage of sin, from the power of death, but that it must be God's work alone. It must be god 's work alone, only he can fight this battle for us. So a paradox emerging: it must be a human being, and yet it must be god 's work alone. The story of the rise and the fall of the physical kingdom and what it speaks to the physical uh, the, sorry, the spiritual kingdom to come adds a little bit as well. We think about the yeah. meaning of the kingdom, which we were reflecting on. Earlier in the year, we see that the promised son through his sacrifice will not only deliver his people, but will be granted power to make them into a new and better kingdom. Power that you see alluded to in the hymns, the songs of praise sung in Revelation 5. All of these themes, all of these hints, all of these glimpses that were given throughout the course of the Old Testament, all of it like thread, comes together, is woven together in this vision of Revelation 5. You might think of this as a peak, as a high point, an ascent through all of those, those uh, mysteries, those veiled pictures. Suddenly now the veil is pulled back, and we see what it's all about. A book, a scroll, rolled up, written on both sides, but sealed with seven seals, so that it is closed. The significance of the seals is interesting because one of the things the seals accomplish is concealment. That's the frustrating part. Because the scroll is sealed, we cannot see what is inside. It's always frustrating not to know what the future holds, not to know what's going to take place, to be denied that information. As long as the scroll is sealed up, And we cannot know its contents. So the seals signify concealment, delay, waiting, withholding. But there's also a significance to the number of the seals. Why seven? Why are there seven seals? People will tell you, well, seven, that's a number in Scripture that has a significance to it. If I were to ask you, what does the number seven mean in Scripture? You'd probably say something like it's the number of completion. It's the number of uh, perfection. So that oftentimes when we see that word seven or that number seven, we, we think in terms of perfection or completion. But I want to suggest another word similar, a synonym that I think helps in this instance understand a little better why there are seven of these. And the word is fullness. Not just completeness or perfection, but fullness. Like a coming to fullness. This isn't the only use of the number seven. We see in the text the lamb that John sees is a lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes. Try to picture that lamb. And, and probably if you saw something that looked like that, literally the last thing you would think is, well, that's a lamb. Because lambs don't typically have seven horns or seven eyes. And this is one of those not very subtle clues that we're dealing in symbolism. In symbolism. Like what's the significance of a horn? When scripture horns denote power, they denote um, strength. So to have seven horns suggests to have come to the fullness of your strength, the perfection, or the completion of your strength. So this is a lamb who has come into his own, a lamb who has come to the fullness of his power. The seven eyes signify, the seven spirits were told. So the fullness of spiritual power present. In the Lamb, fullness of strength, fullness of spiritual power. So could it be that in in having seven seals on the scroll, another kind of fullness is suggested? That what's inside the book, sealed with seven seals, is the fullness of God's plan. Everything is within. Everything is there. All that is necessary for the completion of all that will be is in the book that is sealed with those scrolls, with those seals. What is it exactly? What is this book exactly? Sometimes if you start thinking about famous books in the book of Revelation. You'll think of, for example, the Lamb's Book of Life. So maybe this is the Lamb's Book of Life. It's not exactly that. This is a book that seems to have a a different character to it. And uh, if I were recommending to you a commentary on the book of Revelation, the, the one that I would recommend is Greg Beale's book. And Beale says this about this scroll. He says, The book is best understood as containing God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but has yet to be completed. The question asked by the angelic spokesman concerns who in the created order has sovereign authority over that plan? So inside the book is the plan of God, God's plan of judgment and redemption, of justice and mercy. All of it is within that scroll. And when the angel asks who is worthy to open it, he's asking who has the authority, who has the right to break these seals and open this book? That's the question. The answer seems to be no one. No one in heaven, no one in earth, no one under the earth, no one is found who is worthy. And it makes John cry. It makes him weep. He says, I began to weep loudly. Revelation 5 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and yet this is one of the things about this passage I have almost never stopped to think about. Why does he cry? Why is he weeping like this, weeping loudly, uncontrollably, with a kind of emotional, you know, liquid grief? What prompts this? Nobody, nobody has gotten so wrapped up in the plot of a book or in the plot of a, of a, of a, a television series that when you're binge-watching and suddenly the Wi-Fi goes out, you weep loudly because you're not going to be able to see the last episode? Nobody does this. You shouldn't do this anyway. it, It shouldn't be that way. And yet he weeps. He weeps loudly, uncontrollably. He's bitterly disappointed by this. The scroll cannot be opened. So why does he weep? Well, the answer is in the question. Well, he reads because the scroll cannot be opened. That's what the text says. But it's not really enough. If you were the actor playing the part of the Apostle John, you would go to the director and say, what's my motivation? And if he says, oh, it's because the scroll can't be opened, the obvious question to ask is, why does that matter? Why does it matter that the scroll can't be opened? Why is that something worth crying about? Well, To understand the apostles' tears, we have to understand the significance, or or put it this way, you have to understand what you get when the scroll is opened. What are the benefits that are unlocked once the book is opened? This is Beale again. He says, once the seals are opened, the reader can understand the decretive nature of the book and therefore the purpose of history They can discern that even their sufferings are according to the will of God and can be comforted by entrusting their souls to Him, since He employs suffering to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish them. Despite the chaos and confusion of the world, there is an ordered eschatological plan which cannot be thwarted and is indeed already being fulfilled. All of that is revealed in the opening of the book. So, being unable to open it, is to have all of that taken away. Like all that you were waiting for, the confirmation, the assurance, the comfort, the things you were hoping were true, but it was very easy to doubt. Suddenly, all of it taken away. And there are no answers. There is no resolution. If no one is worthy to open the scroll, then maybe history has no purpose. Our suffering has no meaning. There's no comfort. We were foolish to think otherwise. Maybe there is no order. There's no plan that cannot be thwarted. There's no fulfillment. And that is worth crying about. The denial of that hope is worth weeping loudly over. Now, the tears, unlike a lot of things in the chapter, the tears don't seem to me to be symbolic, they're just emotional. This is a very emotional chapter when you think about it. You go from from the depths of despair to the heights of glory during the course of this passage. From John's tears to the ecstatic words of these hymns that are sung. The tears aren't symbolic, but they are meaningful. You think about the tears that John weeps, and they're tears of shame. He looks throughout creation and sees that none of us are worthy. He's weeping over our collective unworthiness. He is broken by the fact that none of us can do this thing, that none of us can bring about the salvation that is so desperately desired. These are tears of despair. He weeps loudly because the plan cannot be executed. No one is worthy to open the book, whatever the plan was, no matter how great it was, if it's never opened, if it's never put into practice, then there will be no justice. There will be no mercy. Those were just empty ideas. They were just concepts we invented for ourselves. Myths. Tears of frustration as well. When I think about the tears of John, I try to relate... (laughs) To that feeling frustration, I think, is, is what comes to the forefront for me to have come so close. You think about it, he's standing before the throne of God, he is in the inner circle of God. When Ezekiel, when Daniel have visions where the heavens open up. They see these beasts, these elders, these incomprehensible visions. You're in the inner circle here. It seems as if this is where the answers ought to be. They are within reach. He can see the book. And then to say, oh, no, sorry, there is no one who can open it. So close. Frustration to weep bitterly. at at, at defeat when it seemed as if victory was about to take place so you can understand why he weeps. Then there's this beautiful moment where an elder comes to him. An elder speaks to John. He says, weep no more, behold. And he points to the lamb. Weep no more, behold the lamb. In an ideal world, that's a beautiful picture of the snapshot of a work of an elder, by the way. You think about what it is. You would want from an elder in your despair, in your frustration, in your shame, to have someone to come alongside you and comfort you and say weep no more and not give you some good self-help advice, not tell you to be stronger, buck up. Weep no more. Behold the Lamb. It's the best advice we can give. It's the only advice we can give. Look to the cross. Look to Christ and be comforted. The Lamb receives many titles. He's the Lion of Judah, this elder says, picking up on Genesis 49.9, the end of Genesis, when the tribe of Judah is referred to, there will be a lion from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah talks about the root of David, Isaiah 11.1. You can understand, hearing these things, John's told, look, there's a lion Here's the root of David. When he turns to look, you would expect Aslan to be standing there, but not, not so. Instead, it's a lamb, a slaughtered lamb is standing there. And if you remember where we were in Genesis 22, this should resonate, because what are the words of Abraham to Isaac? When Isaac looks around and notices we brought everything but a sacrifice, Abraham says God will provide for himself a lamb. And in Revelation 5, he has. He has. And that's the lamb that the elder points to. Christ, importantly, is presented here in the presence of God as the slain lamb. The way that we're meant to regard him is in this act of atonement. He is victorious, but he's victorious through his sacrificial death and resurrection. That's the act by which he has attained the authority to now open this book. All the threads of the Old Testament now come together in Christ. He is the promised son who sacrifices himself for our salvation. He delivers us from death. And that victory now gives him authority to make a kingdom, to establish a kingdom. This is Beale once more summarizing The work of Christ in this way says God promised to Adam that he would reign over the earth. Although Adam forfeited this promise, Christ, the last Adam, was to inherit it. A human person had to open the book because the promise was made to humanity, but no person was found worthy to open it because all are sinners and stand under the judgment contained in the book. Nevertheless, Christ was found worthy because he suffered the final judgment as an innocent sacrificial victim on behalf of his people, whom he represented and consequently redeemed. Therefore, Christ was able to inherit the promises of the book, as do all those who are represented by him. His death and resurrection are not the end of the story of his work of salvation, in other words. But they are the act by which he receives the glory, the authority to complete that work, to do the rest of what must be done. No one is worthy in all creation to open the seals, but Christ, because of his innocent death and his resurrection, his conquest of death, is worthy to open the seals and do what is found in the book. And that's why they sing, when this is realized, the tears turn to joy. And there's this reverberation of song, which interestingly, John describes, it works from the inside and goes out. It starts in the inner circle, with the elders and and the, the, the mystical beasts. They sing this song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. By your blood, you ransomed people for God. So you see the connection, the worthiness is connected to the death. The death, the purchasing, the atonement, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. That's the first song, the song of the inner circle. Imagine if we sang that song, and when we finished, suddenly you heard the whole city around us breaking into song. That's what happens here. Once this first song is sung, then a larger congregation opens their mouths and sings another song of praise. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As if from this small place, suddenly the whole city erupted into song, but that's not all. Because then the third song comes and this is all creation. All creation. Remember, all creation has been scoured already to find one who is worthy. And now those unworthy ones burst out into song. All of us. To To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The one who sits on the throne, to God the Father, and to the Lamb, the Son. This song of praise. In each of these songs, this common thread, worthiness, worthiness, your worth. You look at the end of the chapter, the the final act, the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Some of you grew up in church, some of you did not, some of you are new to this. Um, Those of us who grew up in church know that when people tell you heaven will be like an eternal church service, that's not much incentive. You're thinking, so a never-ending church service? Hmm, I don't think that's my idea of heaven. It was this chapter that sort of opened my eyes to what that might look like, the exaltation of what that might look like, to be able to speak with utter honesty and humility, the words that are sung in this chapter to feel the fullness of what it means to be the voice that reflects the glory of the one who made you. I started seeing there was something in that. And all the cosmos will one day sing. I wrote my first novel, summer before my senior year in college. And the way that I did this was I worked all night and I would sleep all day uh, because otherwise too many distractions. And when you're up all night and everybody else is asleep, it's a strange world that you inhabit. And sometimes interesting visions will come to you. Halfway through this process, halfway through the summer, up at night, Working on this book, not knowing where I was going, suddenly I had this inspiration, this flash, and I realized I have the perfect ending to this book. And I was giddy with excitement. And I wrote it all down on a scrap of of paper, like yellow legal pad paper. And then I folded it up in my excitement. And I got a candle, and I sealed it up with wax so that I couldn't look at it. Because I was so worried that it wasn't as good as I thought it was. And that, you know, once I had had time to reflect, I'd realized this was a horrible idea. So I sealed it up. And my thinking was, when I finally reach the end, I will open it and I will write it. When I reach the end, I will open up this sealed page and I will do what it says inside. I told all of my friends about it. I was really excited. Uh, but I was also really nervous that when I got to the moment, I would find it was an utter disappointment. Um, and, and spoiler alert, that is basically what happened. This book was never published, and it is the, the, the most generous and kind thing that God ever did for me. They did not allow this to see the light of day. Otherwise, uh, I just would have had so many problems in later life. But, but the experience was thrilling to have this secret, this, this sealed thing that could not be opened until the end. It, it filled me with excitement. When I think about this waiting of Advent, I think about that excitement, that giddiness, that knowing there's something to be opened at the end, that there's something to be unfolded. But, but this is where it gets interesting, because the point wasn't the revelation. The reason I was excited wasn't that, that at the end of the process, I could break the, the, the sad little seal and look inside. I already knew what was inside. The excitement was doing it. In Revelation 5, the thing you have to understand is that the point of the worthiness of the Lamb is not that Christ is worthy by his death and resurrection to pop the seals off the scroll and show us what's inside. The significance of his worthiness is he is worthy to open the book and do what is within it. Not just to reveal the plan, but to execute it. To put it into action. That is the significance of the worthiness of the Lamb. He's the only one who can open the book, which means he's the only one who can do it. And out of love, he does. He does do it. We worship Jesus. We sing songs like the songs in Revelation 5. We worship him not because of the knowledge he has given us. We worship him not because of the insight he's given us into God's plan of salvation. We worship him because he has carried it out. So all glory and honor is due to him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsuefalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.